Hello everyone, this is Sam Biagetti of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. So this should be a very special installment of Historian Explaining because it's Voynich time. By which I mean to say, I'm going to put forward my comments and observations about the Voynich manuscript, often called the world's most mysterious book, and try to point to what it might be, where it might have come from, and how we can interpret it from a historical perspective. So firstly, what is the Voynich manuscript, this so-called world's most mysterious book. It's a manuscript codex, meaning a hand-bound book written on 116 leaves of parchment, richly illustrated in color, in various themes, with text written in an unidentified language, in an unknown, undeciphered script. So the Voynich manuscript is unique in that it is a document containing thousands of lines, not just a single inscription or short passage, but thousands of lines in a writing system. Still not a single line has been decoded, despite decades of obsessive work by some of the top-rate cryptologists in the world, as well as years of examination by linguists and various experts, as well as many amateur obsessives who have collected, analyzed, and tried to follow the various leads and clues as to where this book might have come from and what the pages and pages of text might say. So there's a great irony about the Voynich manuscript that I think ought to be clear when coming at it from the perspective of a historian. There are some historians who have commented in one way or another on the Voynich Manuscript. Deborah Harkness is one. She had an essay in a recent book on the Voynich Manuscript. But by and large, it's been amateurs from various different fields, as well as cryptologists who have tried to you could say, crack the mystery of the Voynich manuscript. And it's the writing, it's the undeciphered writing that has made the book famous. But ironically, that is the aspect of the book that has yielded the least useful information. And the book has become, you could say, a kind of torture, a nightmare for these scholars and amateurs. It is one of a kind in terms of the amount of time and work and energy that has gone into trying to decipher this book that has gone nowhere. And I think that if we're going to learn anything and maybe eventually solve that mystery, we have to go about it differently. We have to reorient ourselves. And we have to recognize that the real question of the Voynich manuscript is not really what does it say. We don't, not only do we not know what it says, we don't know whether it really says anything at all. And even if it is eventually decoded, it may not contain any particularly useful or interesting information. But rather, the real 
primary question, the overarching question of the Voynich manuscript is, what is it? Where did it come from? Who created it and how and why? And we have to approach that question first by looking at all of the evidence, internal and external, within the book itself and surrounding it and connected to it we have to begin from a different direction, not by attacking the text, but by looking at the book itself as an object, as an artifact that came from some particular place and time that we may be able to determine. So before I get into all of that evidence in the book or connected to the book, first I'll just briefly sketch the book's career in the public eye and how it became and rose to become a kind of celebrity object with books, magazine articles, and almost a, a kind of cult following as well as a wider fame in the broader reading public. So the book, Voynich Manuscript, it's named for a Polish rare book dealer named Wilfred Voynich who first presented it to the world and put it in the public eye in the 1910s. And the earliest known instance where Voynich shared this book with other people was in the later months of 1912, when some friends and colleagues in the book-dealing trade were able to view it in his offices in London. And soon after, it caused a sort of small sensation or stir among the wider public, and it spurred on a great deal of expectation that something interesting and maybe earth-shaking was going to be discovered when the writing was decrypted. And as its fame spread, mainly by word of mouth or by lectures, eventually Images, photostat images from the book were published in Harper's Monthly Magazine in 1921, and that's where it first started to become a kind of broader uh, sensation for the, the international literate public. And in particular, an expert, a recognized expert in cryptology, the philosopher William Romain Newbold, who was a philosophy and theology professor at UPenn, examined the texts of the book and claimed to decipher it. And he asserted that the decryption revealed the author to be Roger Bacon, who was a famous Franciscan friar in England in the 1200s, who was known to be an eminent mathematician and natural philosopher, and particularly an early expert in optics. And Newbold claimed that this decryption revealed previously unknown sciences of optics, astronomy, and biology that had all been discovered by Bacon in the 1200s and encoded into this book. And Newbold claimed that his description was based not just on the characters as they plainly appear on the page, but also on tiny breaks and turns and microstrokes in the lines that made up the characters. 
And not surprisingly, no one else who tried to use Newbold's method was able to come up with a similar decrypted translation text. And so not long after this theory was abandoned, at least by most reasonable skeptical observers, and the book continued to be a mystery, Wilfred Voynich tried through the 1920s to sell the book, but he was never able to get a very good offer, and he was never able to get nearly the amount of money that he thought it merited. And he held out for a decryption. It seems that all through the 20s until the end of his life in 1930, he continued to believe that someone was going to be able to decode the book and demonstrate the knowledge that was contained therein and hopefully demonstrate that it was indeed a product of Roger Bacon. But this didn't happen. And when he died in 1930, he simply left ownership of the book to his wife and his assistant, Anne Nill. And it attracted the attention of, let's say, higher-level, more expert and more accomplished cryptologists, particularly towards the end of World War II in the 1940s, a pair of very renowned, very accomplished cryptologists, William and Elizabeth Friedman, who had been the leaders of the project that decoded Japanese signals code called PURPLE, codenamed PURPLE, They took up the Voynich manuscript as a kind of hobby project, and they even organized a so-called Voynich working group of cryptanalysts who were basically done with their work on World War II and started focusing and cooperating on trying to break the Voynich code. But the Freedmans and their colleagues eventually gave up. And eventually, in 1962, Elizabeth Friedman pronounced that statistical analysis, the sort of cryptological analysis that had enabled people to break the Purple Code and also the German Enigma Code, would simply not work. They, They were getting no results, and she pronounced that such statistical analysis on the Voynich was, quote, doomed to frustration. And after this point, interest in the Voynich manuscript gradually faded as it seemed less and less likely that it was going to be cracked and that it was going to reveal anything important or interesting connected to Roger Bacon or any other famous important author. So in the 1960s, Ethel Voynich and Anne Nill sold off most of the remaining Voynich collection of rare books. But at first, there was no taker for the Voynich manuscript. But in 1961, another rare book dealer named Krauss bought the Voynich for a very low price, much lower than Wilfred or Ethel Voynich had been hoping it might obtain. And Krauss, after not very long, despaired of finding a buyer on the market for the Voynich manuscript. It had basically faded out of public view and public interest. And so in 1969, he donated it for free to the Beinecke Rare Books Library at Yale University, which at least had a very good facility for protecting and preserving rare old books. And after that point, when it's in the possession of Yale, it was only of interest to really very small circles of hobbyists mainly interested in cryptology. 
Most of the time it sat in a vault. There was at least some lingering public interest or curiosity enough for a a book of essays on it to be published in the 1970s, which were not generally very good or persuasive or insightful. But later in the 1990s, when it became easier to share information and images from the Voynich manuscript over the internet, interest started to pick up again, and more and more people became interested in examining and discussing the Voynich manuscript, not simply as a potential link to some famous author like Roger Bacon, but simply as a puzzle, a a sort of intellectual challenge. And more and more people wanted to go and see the book at the Beinecke Library at Yale. And so the librarians became concerned for the condition and protection of the book. And so after 2000, Yale scanned all the pages of the Voynich manuscript with very high-quality, high-resolution scans and put all of them online. Uh, If you go to the Beinecke site today, you can click through all of the pages and zoom in, and apparently this, this page gets tremendous traffic, about half of all the traffic for the Yale Library servers is people looking at the Voynich manuscript. And, of course, all kinds of theories have sprung up about the meaning of the book, the origins, and particularly how to decode and translate the text. Some believe that it is an encryption of a known language, something like Latin or Hebrew or Turkish or Mandarin Chinese, etc., etc. There have been all kinds of theories put forward. Some believe it's an unencrypted plain text of of an unknown language, so not put into a cipher code, but simply uh, a straightforward phonetic writing in some language that is simply unknown, perhaps an extinct or rare language. Some have argued that it's some sort of supernatural language, a language invented from angel communication, such as the supposed conversations with angels conducted by Edward Kelly, the magus in Renaissance England. Some have argued that it's a sort of visionary or outsider art created by some sort of strange uh, idiosyncratic inventor or or visionary. Uh, It may be a case of glossolalia, where people sort of spontaneously speak in foreign or invented languages. Some have argued that it is an intentionally created artificial or philosophical language, and that's why it can't be matched, has not been matched to a known language. And some argue that it is a hoax of one sort or another, that it's uh, a product of fakery, and that the text contains no meaning at all. It's simply gibberish text. And more specifically, some have argued that it may be a hoax, uh, fake alchemical herbal, created in the 15 or 1600s, or created much later, particularly by Wilfred Voynich himself, who forged the whole thing in order to mimic what would seem to be an older text with some kind of important secret knowledge. Hobbyists and obsessives today continue to debate these various theories, and they tend the the debate today among Voynich devotees 
tends to circle around this central divide of whether it is a hoax or authentic, whether it is simply a fake gibberish text or some more meaningful creation that is hundreds of years old. So finally, in the 2000s, Yale also paid for a series of physical and chemical analyses on the book by McCrone Laboratories, a forensic laboratory in the United States. And McCrone's report was published in various parts in 2009, 10, 11, and eventually a summary of their most important findings was published together in a volume containing a complete facsimile of all the pages of the book published by Yale University Press in 2016. Even after the publication of this book, all kinds of questions and debates continue and the Voynich obsession continues. Uh, there, You could say that there are amateurs who have uh, devoted themselves to studying the Voynich manuscript. You could call some of them experts in quotation marks, but really I would refer to them as obsessives, people who have been pulled in firstly by curiosity, by the oddity of it, then by bewilderment and confusion. And I think, you know, I have been one of these obsessives myself for a certain period of time. And I can attest that there is, in a way, something like the, you know, five stages of grief, the different mental states and emotions that one often goes through in learning about and trying to puzzle out the Voynich manuscript from curiosity to bewilderment to what I would call a Voynich dread, a sort of feeling of <laughs> of deep existential dread that this inexplicable object that really shouldn't exist and that doesn't seem to make any sense nonetheless does exist and that this seems to upset one's received notions and comfortable assumptions about how the world works. And this series of emotions should lead, in the best cases, it ought to lead towards a realization that the real mystery of this book is not what does it say. As I said before, it may or may not say anything at all. And if it does say something, if there is meaning in the text, it may or may not be anything particularly important. The real mystery that one has to grapple with is where did it come from, who created it, and why? And that question is really the weirder question than simply what does it say? Now, people who sort of first encounter the Voynich manuscript and talk about it in a kind of casual way will often throw out sort of knee-jerk reactions of what seems to be sort of easy explanations. You know, aliens is one thing many people seem to say quickly as a sort of off-the-cuff joke without realizing that it's been said many, many times over. Another is hoax, okay? So as I said before, there are serious arguments to be made on both sides here as to whether or not the book is a hoax, whether it was intentionally created to look like something it isn't or to seem as if it came from a time and a place that it didn't really come from. That's a serious question that we'll consider. But it's not a simple matter. Simply saying hoax actually might only raise more questions than it answers. What seems like an easy, simple explanation may not really be an explanation 
at all. And really, one has to deal with the lingering and difficult existential confusion of where this object could have come from and how it could possibly have the bizarre combination of features that it has. And simply saying aliens or hoax does not get us around that problem. So the Voynich obsessives who really deal in a serious way with the mystery of the book, I think, continue a sort of complex and painstaking search for precedents, parallels, and clues that can help to make sense of this object and where it came from, rather than just throwing out sort of glib hypotheses or, uh, you know, half-serious explanations that don't really explain anything. And finally, I think these, these better Voynich obsessives, the ones who have gotten us somewhere in the search for answers about the manuscript, they go through a sort of gradual and slow assimilation of trying to understand and account for how this thing is real, how it could be possible that this object was created, and how it can fit into our wider picture and understanding of the world. So in a way, you could say, you know, from the the Voynich dread stage (laughs) is one where it simply makes no sense and you can't fit together the existence of this book with everything else that you know about the world. But eventually, with enough careful reasoning, you can begin to assimilate it. And I'm going to try to sort of walk us through in this lecture how that how to make sense of the Voynich manuscript, at least as best as we can. And especially today, now in the 21st century, there are more and more ways to account for the Voynich manuscript. We have much more information about old books, much more access to texts, access to images of old books and artifacts that can help us to contextualize what this object is, where it might have come from, or at least what, what it might be mimicking or imitating. So to make sense of the Voynich manuscript, we have to turn away from the old pathway, which is attacking the text and assuming that the text will be the key that will explain everything else, that will reveal then what the book is and where it comes from. And we have to approach it from the opposite direction as a historical artifact. And I'm going to try to do this basically in the methodical manner of a historian. And believe it or not, I'm going to try to be brief about it and not go into every painstaking detail because one could write book after book after book just discussing the Voynich manuscript and all the different possibilities and all the different views and arguments and counter arguments and theories and counter theories and facts and alternative facts that different parties have floated uh, about the Voynich manuscript and certainly one could spend an entire lifetime following all the threads and all the different speculations and possibilities and interpretations about this book. And I can say that with confidence because some people have done that. There are people who have basically blown decades of their lives uh, on the Voynich manuscript. And the progress that's been made from all of that obsession is limited, but it is not non-existent. So I'm going to try to work through what is the most important, most revealing evidence that tells us about what this book might be. And 
as I go, I'm going to try to just subtly mark out what are observations that other people have made that are commonly known and discussed and what are my own observations and interpretations. So what is the evidence? Well, firstly, there's the internal evidence of the book itself. And then there is the very scant scattering of external evidence of references that might be about or connected to this book. And I'm going to start from the beginning, which is looking at this book as an object or as an artifact. And the Voynich Manuscript, you could say, comprises three basic layers or dimensions of evidence. First, there is the book itself as a physical artifact, its materials, its form, its construction, its condition. Then there is the visual images, the drawings and illustrations. And then thirdly, there's the text. And I'm going to look at these different aspects of the book in that order, rather than beginning from the text. So we'll look at each of these three aspects or dimensions of the book, and as we do so, compare it against the relevant known historical record. As I said, looking for clues and for parallels. And that might include comparison to other books or objects, other artwork, and also piecing together possible references or connections from the book to the outside world for clues as to provenance, as to where it came from and who created it. And maybe through this, we'll be able to at least narrow down to a better theory of the origins of the book and of its nature, if not a precise identification. That's sort of the holy grail that we want. I'm not going to advance a sort of man behind the curtain uh, revelation of who the real author or creator is. So as I said, most people who have tried to figure out the book, like the Freedmans and Voynich himself and Newbold, have started from the text. And this is not surprising considering that the text is what first drew public attention to the book. That is what made it an object of widespread curiosity. But we're going to go about it differently, starting from the basics, from the physical makeup to the visual imagery and then to the text. So, beginning with the book as a physical object. As I said, it's handmade, handbound, and handwritten. It measures about 10 inches by 7 inches. So, in terms of a, a codex, it's somewhat on the small side. It is drawn and written on 116 leaves of vellum, which is a type of parchment made from calf skin. And the vellum of the Voynich Manuscript is fairly well prepared, nicely done, smooth, strong. It's reasonably good quality vellum. It is clear that the vellum was first written on and illustrated and then bound together into a codex, which was the normal uh, common process for handwritten manuscript book construction. One can see, for example, stitching holes punctured through the leaves of vellum, some of which go right through characters or drawings, which demonstrates that definitely the leaves were written and drawn on first before they were bound together. It is also clear, therefore, that whoever wrote and drew, whoever the scribes are, 
who created the text and images in the book, did not find an old existing codex, erase it, and then write something new on it. And in fact, it seems by all indications that this vellum was blank and previously unused before the scribes wrote the Voynich manuscript and then bound it together into a codex. The cover of the book is a different material. It's made of simple goatskin parchment, a bit lower quality and thicker than the vellum. It's written and drawn in using inks of various colors, a simple brown for the text and various other colors for the illustrations. As for its condition, there is a great deal of wear and staining and some curling on the leaves of the book, which tend to suggest age and use. There are several small wormholes found eaten into the beginning and ending leaves of the book, at the front and back of the book, which suggest that it used to at some point have a wood cover that was infested with woodworms before it was removed and replaced. There are also clearly several leaves missing from various parts of the book, and there are a number of indications that show that this is true. For one thing, at some point, someone used handmade ink to write Arabic numeral page numbers on all the leaves of the book, and there are gaps. So we know that several leaves are gone, and there are other reasons uh, to conclude this as well. As for the binding and how it is put together, it's bound together at the spine with linen cords, stitched with linen cords, in a stitching style that was common in the Middle Ages. In most medieval codices, usually the stitching is with strips of leather, but linen strips, like you see in the Voynich manuscript, is not unknown. As I said, the current goatskin cover is not original, and clearly at some point the book was disassembled re and rebound with a new cover, possibly in the 1700s. The old cover was, contained wood boards and was covered over in tanned leather, something of higher quality, which left behind stains on the front and back leaves. And it's possible that the book was disassembled and rebound and recovered because of the infestation of woodworms. That would make sense. This time, whenever this was, maybe in the 1700s, when the book was disbound and rebound, this may be the same time when those missing leaves were removed. We can't say why they were removed, possibly because they were very worn, maybe even falling apart, or perhaps because someone wanted those leaves especially to give or lend to someone else or they were needed for some other purpose. So the fact that they are missing and were never returned to the book is very frustrating because either way, whether they were taken out because of wear or because of some need for them for some other purpose, either way, this suggests that those leaves were particularly important and attracted particular attention from the owners and users of the book. But we don't know what was on them. As I mentioned before, between 2009 and 2015, Yale paid for a series of physical and chemical examinations of the book by McCrone Laboratories. These reports and summaries have been published. For one thing, they did a carbon dating analysis of the vellum 
on which the book is written. And it found that the different leaves of the vellum were definitely all created in the same broad swath of time between sometime between the late 1300s and the early 1500s with an overwhelming likelihood that they were created around the same time in the early 1400s specifically between about 1410 and 1430 so they were they come to an over 90% confident conclusion that the vellum was created between 14 about 1410 and 1430 the other materials particularly the ink on the vellum cannot be carbon dated because the these it's too little of the substance and it contains too little carbon to be able to come to any conclusion as for the ink as i said it could not be carbon dated but it could be analyzed chemically and spectroscopically using different frequencies of light. And Macron found that the ink was made in numerous small batches using widely known and widely available natural materials, all of which were commonly used in the creation of ink in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance era. The Brown text and dark lines in the illustrations are made with iron gall ink, which is made from mixing iron into gall, which was a chemical extracted from gall nuts from oak trees, the sort of wads and burls of wood that oak trees produce in order to protect themselves against parasites. So uh, that was a normal common way of creating dark brown or black ink. The illustrators used azurite, a commonly available, fairly inexpensive natural mineral for the blue. They used iron oxide mixed with a little bit of vermilion for the red and various copper compounds for green. So all of these inks were fairly decent quality for the 15th, 16th, or 17th centuries. They would have taken a certain amount of work to create, probably by skilled craftsmen, but they did not include very expensive and more rare luxury materials like lapis for a more brilliant blue. The inks were applied with a quill, a feather quill, and some of them were dried with sprinklings of sand, which also was a common practice in the early modern era. The inks also were thickened with gum arabic, another fairly widely available natural material. So in all of these ways, there's nothing particularly extraordinary about the inks used to draw and write in the Voynich manuscript. And any number of people could have created them by hand in their own batches, any reasonably experienced craftsman or scribe. But most importantly, as Macron points out, there is no sign of any sort of chemicals or contaminants that would give the materials away as modern, say post-1800. There's nothing like you know, mercury or any sort of new chemicals or solvents that expose it as a modern forgery. That doesn't mean it isn't a modern forgery, but there's nothing to indicate that. So all in all, if we consider the physical condition and makeup of the book, we have to consider three basic possibilities. One is that the book genuinely dates to the 15th century. And the main principal reason why one might 
suppose this is because the vellum was made in the early 15th century. And vellum was a fairly good quality material. It's much better and more durable and stronger than paper, for instance. And ordinarily, people bought vellum at a fairly high price. It was not a luxury item like diamonds or rubies, but it was fairly expensive. And it tended to then be used right away. It was not left simply sitting around. And you might compare vellum in this way to certain other materials that we might have today in, in our own world, such as perhaps window glass or finely embroidered silk. Right? These are materials that you can obtain, but they're not all that easy to find, especially not in instances where they're very old. It is not normal or common at all to find a large stash of unused window glass and say, aha, I suppose I'll use this now to make some windows. That's not how it works. You tend to measure out and order the specific window glass that you want for your purposes. And likewise, with a fine material like embroidered silk, you're not often going to see a tailor making a new dress out of 100-year-old silk. It's simply not something that's so widely available. And even if it is, it's going to be very expensive. So vellum is similar. If, if you find a book and it's written on vellum, you can suppose that most likely it, is, it was created shortly after the vellum was obtained or shortly after the vellum was made. And that if it is not, then that means that probably there was an original book written on that vellum which then was scraped or erased off so that the vellum could be reused for some other purpose that someone considered to be more important. And this is called a palimpsest, when one text is obliterated off of parchment and something else is written over it. Palimpsests are somewhat common, but Macrone found that the Voynich manuscript is not a palimpsest and that these choirs and leaves, these sort of bundles, which we call choirs and leaves of vellum, were written on first before they were bound together into this codex. And there is definitely no sign of any scraping off of any old text. So for this basic reason, one possibility that we have to consider right away is that the book dates to shortly after the vellum was made in the 15th century. Another, a second possibility to consider is that the book is somewhat later, maybe from the 16th or 17th century, and that it was created using some materials that were still fairly common and normal in the 16th and 17th centuries, like iron gall ink or azurite blue dye, and that for some reason the creators of the book used very old vellum, which is unusual but not impossible. So a third possibility is, as we've mentioned before, that it's a modern fake, that it was elaborately sourced and produced in order to seem old, that it, it's a modern hoax using old materials, avoiding any sort of modern anachronistic materials, and then aged and bound in such a way as to seem old. Based just on the materials and form of the book, just on these aspects that we've discussed so far, it seems as if the first two possibilities are more likely and the third one seems less likely. And we'll discuss more later why that is. But the basic idea should be obvious. 
how and why would someone have gone through all the work and trouble of creating a book using all of these old materials, including 600-year-old vellum, in order to produce this book? And how could they have successfully avoided doing anything or using any sort of material that would give it away as new. And this is particularly the case when carbon dating didn't exist at the time when Wilfred Voynich brought forth this Voynich manuscript. There was no knowledge that anyone would ever be able to take pieces of vellum and date exactly how old they are. So this this is a new technology. And so it seems, on the face of it, it seems unlikely that Wilfred Voynich would have gone through the trouble of somehow obtaining 15th century blank unused vellum in order to create an elaborate forgery. Now, putting that aside, let's say that we we keep in mind that these three possibilities are all on the table, that it's a 15th century book, that it's a slightly later 16th or 17th century book, or that it's a modern fake. Let's then turn to the second aspect of the book, which is the imagery and illustrations. Almost every single page of the Voynich manuscript is illustrated, some of them remarkably elaborately. The images include some very large, complex colored drawings on foldouts. So not all of the pages are the same size. Some actually fold out of the book into large spreads, you could say, with remarkably complex and detailed and strange drawings. The style of the Voynich illustrations is bizarre, sometimes very detailed, but usually fairly crude and ill-finished. This is not the work of a great artist. This is definitely not a Leonardo sketchbook. But in some places, it's clear that that the illustration was very painstaking and must have taken a significant amount of work and attention to detail. So if we look just at the illustrations, we can use them as a key to divide the book into five basic sections. Some people say four. I, I would count them as five. Firstly, there's the herbal or botanical section, which basically takes up the first half of the book. And in this first section, each page is illustrated with a complete drawing of one plant, a complete depiction including leaves, stems, flowers, and roots, and an accompanying paragraph of text, which looks as if it must say something about the plant. Secondly, there's an astrological section, which has various star charts and diagrams that appear to be calendar wheels of days, weeks, months of the year. And this includes one large section with wheel-shaped diagrams centering on zodiac signs, probably each one in some way depicting or commenting on a month of the year. Thirdly, there is a so-called balneological section with scenes of bathing, specifically series of naked women in pools and caverns with fluid and tubes, many of them apparently crawling in or out of mysterious tubes and passageways. And the motifs in the balneological section, some of them can be seen to repeat and echo similar 
aspects of the astrological section. So in the astrological section too, there are scenes of naked women, particularly in the zodiac section, and some of them are women emerging, uh, seeming to emerge from these tube objects. Fourthly, there is the rosettes page, which is an enormous foldout with a tremendous diagram featuring nine undefinable, really indescribable round forms with different patterns and symbols strewn all over them and that seem to be in some way interconnected with streams and cells linking them. This is, you know, by far the most striking and unaccountable part of the book. Finally, there is a pharmacological section with a fairly simple, straightforward arrangement of elements of different parts of plants, such as leaves or roots or or flowers arranged in rows around blocks of text, and sometimes accompanied by drawings of strange objects that look rather like medicine or perfume jars and some tube or cylindrical objects that look more or less like instructions or recipes for some kind of pharmacological medicinal creations. And the end of the pharmacological section is just several pages with simple lines of text with no illustrations except for just simple star or flower icons that seem to act as bullet points at the beginning of each little uh, item of text. So the, the you could say the most sort of pared back and straightforward part of the book is there at the end. And this has sometimes been called the recipe pages. So overall, if we look through all of these different sections of the book, there are certain features or themes that seem to run through it. And all in all, the book, you could say, shows a very strange mix of the familiar with the unfamiliar. Various parts of the book do look fairly close to some other European handwritten books from the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance, which is roughly the time and place we would expect this book to come from based on its appearance and its materials. But all of them also come with a weird twist, with a catch of some kind. So if we start with the herbal section, the herbal section with the plants and blocks of text reasonably resembles, in some in some instances fairly closely resembles, other herbals from this era in Europe, which were used for alchemical or medicinal purposes. But the catch is that none of the plants can be identified in any sort of straightforward way. Only a few rough, inexact, conjectural identifications can be made. For example, one of the plants looks a good bit like an opium poppy, but far more of the specimens in the herbal section are simply non-existent. They just do not match up in any reasonable way to any real known plant. It looks more like an elaborate, careful delineation of fantasy, of made-up, of sometimes very detailed and very beautiful made-up plants more than real plants. Now, I should say there are botanists, namely the botanists Arthur O. Tucker and Jules Janik, who have argued that 
a good deal of the plants actually can be identified if you consider the Americas and the New World. And in an article in 2017, they argued that you can actually match up many of the drawings to plants that would have been known, particularly in Mesoamerica, in the area of Mexico and Central America, such as uh, the sunflower. There is on page 33 verso, there is a plant that definitely looks a good bit like a sunflower, even if it's not a perfect match. There are also green globular objects in the pharmacological section that look a good bit like particular cactus plants from the New World. So there are some reasonable arguments that a good deal of them can be identified, but also a lot of them are just strange and unaccountable. As we look at the astrological section, elaborate star charts and calendar charts are not all that unusual in various sorts of books from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, such as magical grimoires, alchemical or medical books. And by and large, they tend to be books relating in some way to health and healing. But the problem is that usually these books feature real constellations. Whereas when we look at the star charts in the Voynich manuscript, none of them can be matched with real recognizable constellations. One possible exception is one group that looks rather like the Pleiades, but it's only a rough match. And really, you can just take any cluster of seven stars and claim that it's a depiction of the Pleiades. When we look at the calendar wheels, some of them look like they probably depict four seasons. They're in four sections, and they have four faces or human figures that seem to be traveling in a cycle. But there are many other more elaborate and unusual charts that certainly look like calendars, but they have very strange structures based on weird numbers, such as base 8, 9, 12, 16, and 17. So some of these could plausibly be representing months or seasons, like 8 or 12, but others are not. And if we understand them as astrological at all, they seem to relate to some sort of unknown, unique scheme of astrology. Thirdly, as for the balneological section, there are many other scenes of bathing and wading that can be seen in many other medieval and Renaissance books, particularly alchemical manuscripts. A great example is the Ripley Carpenter Scroll, which, like many other alchemical books and manuscripts, shows scenes of an alchemical conjunctio, meaning a joining together or chemical marriage of male and female principles. And this is depicted as a, a male and female sort of Adam and Eve figure wading and bathing in pools of fluid. So that's not all that unusual as far as alchemical books. There are also many books that deal with literal bathing. Bathing was a common practice in the Middle Ages, and it continued as a medical practice in the Renaissance. And there are many versions of books such as De Balneus Puteolanus, which is a medieval 
book about the baths of Pozzuoli in Italy and their medical properties that was written in 1197 and then reproduced in many versions, often with fairly similar scenes of people in pools and channels of water, very reminiscent of what you see in the Voynich manuscript. But what's strange and unique about the Voynich book is the very elaborate scenes of tubes, of these weird passageways, sometimes shown in cross sections, sort of curling around and connecting these different chambers and pools of water, and in many instances with figures of women going through the tubes or emerging out of the tubes in ways that definitely cannot represent any real scene, but are obviously imaginary and fantastical. So this leads to speculation. Many people have argued the the scenes of bathing ladies must be symbolic in some way. Perhaps the female figures represent elements or humors in the body. And maybe these tubes and channels represent veins or other vessels in the body. And if, if this is true, which, you know, seems plausible, this would make the Voynich manuscript... Uh, unique and unlike any alchemical or balneological book. Then fourth, as for the Rosettes page, which is not often treated apart as its own distinctive feature of the book, but which what really should be. The Rosettes fold-out page is clearly the most important, elaborate, and painstaking part of the book, and it's rich with significant and strange details. It may be overlooked because it's simply too strange. It's just too unrelatable and uninterpretable. There's nothing else like it. You know, unlike the herbal or balneological or astrological charts, there's just nothing (laughs) to which you can compare the Voynich Rosette's page. And as I said, it shows a series of nine interconnected orbs of some sort, some of them with detailed wheel patterns and tubes, and also small aspects that seem to in some way relate to the real world. So although the Rosettes page is bizarre and incomprehensible and unique, nonetheless, it also has some of the clearest depictions of what might be objects or features in the real world, specifically architectural walls and towers, like fortifications. It may be that the Rosettes page represents, I I would speculate the Rosettes page represents some sort of cosmology, a sort of world chart or chart of the cosmos, showing the relations and interconnections between different realms or spheres of the cosmos, including the Earth, which is suggested by these much more mundane Earth-like features that we see almost like a landscape on some of the orbs. Finally, as for the pharmacological or recipes page, which seems superficially to be the most straightforward, it's still mysterious because the parts of plants simply cannot be matched up to any real specimens. The text, of course, is uninterpreted. And in the margins, there are depictions of objects, as I mentioned before, that look like they could maybe be jars or maybe ointment or medicine or perfume jars, or perhaps microscopes, cylindrical, sort of simple microscopes, optical instruments of some kind. And it can't be taken lightly because, 
As I said, these objects and the plants cannot be identified. And furthermore, another complication you could say is that the sort of cylindrical or column-shaped objects in sections are strange and distinctive, and some of them have sort of onion dome tops. And similar objects of the same form are seen in other places in the book, particularly a circle of these sort of objects are seen at the very center of the rosettes page. So there seems to be something more going on here with these things depicted in the pharmacological section than just simple recipes. So all in all, it seems as if the Voynich manuscript was almost perfectly designed to baffle and confuse people, to arouse certain expectations based on the common conventions of certain genres, like alchemical herbals, only to then frustrate those expectations and repeatedly throw a wrench in the works. So some have speculated that maybe this is intentional. Maybe whoever created the Voynich manuscript wanted to sort of play with and frustrate and even toy with our expectations of what a manuscript codex should look like. Or maybe it's just an accidental artifact of how it was created. Either way, these broad themes and patterns in the different sections of the book cannot tell us anything very precise about exactly where and when it would have come from. These are all just sort of vague and ambiguous similarities or parallels to other sorts of known books. In order to zero in, we have to look more closely at smaller and precise clues that could potentially relate the contents of the book to more specific places or times or people. And there aren't many of these specific clues, but there are, for one thing, a few concrete images that might actually relate to specific places or objects that could be datable. And secondly, there are, I'll say, certain common patterns or a common valence to the strange and anomalous qualities of the book as a whole. I'll posit that there is a kind of method to this madness. It is not just random. So firstly, what are some of these more specific concrete images in the book that could maybe tell us something more specific to tie it to a place in time? Well, firstly, there are the human figures and their clothing. So the vast majority of the figures in the book are naked women. But there are some who are clothed. And in most cases, the clothing is just sort of indistinct generic robes or tunics that could come from a wide range of places and times. But there is one exception. So... Folio 73 verso, which means the, the backside of the 73rd leaf of the book, has the Sagittarius astrological chart. And in the center, there is a Sagittarius figure, which is very unusual. So ordinarily in astrological texts, Sagittarius is represented with a centaur holding a bow and arrow. 
But in the Voynich manuscript, the Sagittarius figure is a man on foot, not a centaur, but a man on foot who is clothed and holding a crossbow, which, you know, was a fairly common military technology in the 15th, 16th centuries. He's wearing a sort of generic, indistinct, uh, belted tunic, but he also is wearing a very distinctive hat, a hat with a large rolled front band over the forehead and a sleeve of cloth hanging out the back and draped down his back. So this style of hat is called a chaperon with a leery pipe. So the the basic uh, style or form of hat is a chaperon and that sort of sleeve hanging out the back is the leery pipe. This style of headwear was common in much of Central Europe in the 1300s through the early 1400s. It generally started to go out of style in the mid-1400s, and by about 1500, it was really unknown. It was particularly common, it seems, in sort of west-central Europe, in Burgundy and the Netherlands, but it also was seen elsewhere, and it seems that the fashion actually lasted a bit longer in Italy, especially northern Italy. And a good example of the chaperon with a leery pipe can be seen, for instance, on the famous portrait bust of Lorenzo de' Medici from Florence, which was based on uh, a depiction of Lorenzo from life from 1478. So that's the sort of context where you might have seen that sort of headgear, which again tends to point us towards the 13 or early 1400s, which roughly lines up with what we know about the age of the vellum. Secondly, there are the architectural features. So there are not many of these, very little can be seen, but as I said, there are very small, sort of finely drawn images of walls and towers that can be seen in the Rosette's page. And these walls, they're, they're clearly depicting some sort of fortification, and they're crenellated. So they have that sort of, uh, you know, sawtooth pattern on top, like you see along the tops of the ramparts of castles and fortresses. And in these walls and towers in the Rosette's page, these crenellated walls have swallowtail merlins. So merlin is the word for this sort of tooth-like projection, on, on top of a crenellated wall. And swallowtail merlins are ones that have little notches, sort of like triangular notches, cut into the top of the merlin. So it's shaped almost like a, a swallow's tail sticking up into the air. Swallowtail merlins in crenellation originated in northern Italy. They are found in other parts of Europe, but they are definitely most common, especially in northeastern Italy. The style is sometimes also called Ghibelline crenellation because it was associated for a time with the political faction in northern Italy that supported the authority of the emperor as against the pope. So it's, it's sort of associated with the political alignment with the Holy Roman Empire. And again, it was most common in northeastern and north-central Italy. And more specifically, if we look at the upper right rosette on one side of that, of that orb-like shape, there is a small, very small figure of a complete castle. 
It's a square-based castle with crenellated ramparts running all around the top. And this sort of square-based castle with Ghibelline crenellation was most common in northeastern Italy, even more so than in the other areas around central and eastern Europe where you might find swallowtail crenellation. And it's especially characteristic, you could say, of areas uh, around the Veneto and also border areas of the Veneto and Lombardy. Moreover, if we look closely at the Voynich Castle, it has a turret projecting up from one of the corners, and the turret is topped with a tall, steeply pitched conical or pyramidal peak. And this is an aspect that I don't think I've seen anyone else specifically discuss. There has been a good deal of discussion about the Voynich Castle and the Swallowtail crenellations. But if you look at the tower, it has this steeply pitched conical or pyramidal peak, which also is characteristic of northeastern Italy, especially the Veneto. And you can think as an example of the Campanile of San Marco on the Piazza San Marco in Venice. So the Voynich Castle is very small, and it's too simple and crude to be directly identified with any real world castle. But nonetheless, we can say that in its character and its details, it resembles castles in the Veneto region of Italy or near the border of the Veneto and Lombardy. And you can say it looks roughly, although it's simplified, it looks roughly similar to certain real castles, like, for instance, Scaliger Castle on Lake Garda near Verona, just west of Verona, and the Palazzo Ducale, or Duke's Palace in Mantova, also in Lombardy near Verona. So all in all, we can say these specific details, these more revealing details in the book, tend to point generally towards the 15th century and towards northern, especially northeastern Italy. Okay, so say we zoom out again and look, as I said, at the sort of broader pattern or theme among the different unusual anomalous qualities of the book. There seems to be running all through the book a continuing emphasis on fertility and reproduction. For instance, beginning right in the herbal section, all of the plants are flowering and they're all shown in flower. This is very unusual for an herbal. There are many plants that don't flower or that have important features like in the leaves or roots that simply have nothing to do with flowers. And so this is unique among medieval and renaissance herbals to show every plant flowering and to put a lot of emphasis on the brilliance and the shapes and the colors of the flowers. This seems to be connected to a sort of broader theme of femininity and female reproduction. There's, of course, this continuing repetition of female nudes. And this makes the Voynich manuscript different from, say, alchemical books that might have somewhat similar bathing scenes. In an alchemical manuscript like the Ripley Carpenter Scroll, you see these paired male and female figures uh, sort of symbolically balanced against one another. That is not what we see 
in the Voynich manuscript. We do not see paired or matched male and female counterparts. Rather, we see a profusion of female nudes. And in the zodiac diagrams, we see what look like sort of marches or parades of female nudes marching around the zodiac figures. And they're depicted carrying objects that look like flowers, little um, open flowers on stems. And so that connects the, the nude women to the flowers and also to the stars, because the, the symbolic figure that's used to represent the flower is identical to the depiction of the stars in the astrological charts. So there seems to be a sort of continuing identification or fusion of stars with flowers, all associated with the seasons, the cycle of the seasons, and fertility. Furthermore, if one looks at the astrological diagrams, which contain sort of Voynich versions, alternative revised versions of familiar astrological symbols, there's a strange switching of male to female figures. Firstly, Leo, normally, you know, a lion. In the Voynich manuscript, the Leo figure is instead a lioness with no mane. So the male lion has changed to a female lioness, and furthermore, she's depicted licking her paw, which is an act of bathing and cleansing, seemingly in keeping with these figures of bathing women. Also, if we look at Gemini, Gemini is normally understood to be two male twins. But in the Voynich manuscript, instead, it's a man and a woman. So one of them has been flipped to female. And... Another aspect of this that we have to consider is that there's this huge emphasis on femaleness and female bodies, but there is not the, a complete erasure of male presence either. It's only minimized or you could say hidden. Again, if one looks at the, the Gemini calendar chart, as I said, one, there's one male twin and one female and if we look at the figures that are walking in circles around the Gemini symbol, most of them seem to be women, but some are also androgynous, are really ambiguous. It's, there's, there's not clear enough detail to say whether they're supposed to be male or female. And there is at least one definite male in the upper right of the diagram. There is one figure that is unambiguously a man just sort of slotted in into this book with hundreds and hundreds of female figures. So maybe this represents a sort of odd uh, thinking about sex or gender, that the sort of male presence is just marginal or just an afterthought. Or maybe there's something more specific about Gemini, that Gemini in particular is understood to represent something about the joining or blending of male and female principles. So, taking all of these things into account, we can say that all in all, the, the visual clues tend to point towards the 15th century, towards northeastern Italy, and towards a collection, a sort of unusual idiosyncratic collection of herbal, medical, and astrological lore focusing particularly on fertility and reproduction, and hence, we could speculate that perhaps the book was created in northeastern Italy, maybe by a healer or a group of healers who were particularly concerned 
with the female body fertility and reproduction and perhaps a group of female or mostly female healers or wise women who wanted to collect and represent this knowledge dealing with fertility. So all of this, I would say, generally makes sense in context because we know that there were female healers who were widely understood to have herbal expertise and particularly to have special knowledge about the female body and reproduction. And more particularly, we know from the historical record that there were surviving small or you could say medium-sized fertility cults, sort of quasi-secretive, quasi-hidden groups of mostly women who were understood to have certain special magical powers, particularly relating to plants. And these fertility cults in Europe, including in Italy, persisted into the 15th and 16th centuries, so into the time range that we ought to be looking at. These fertility groups, they're widely varying. They're, they're not uniform, but they were scattered around Europe and particularly common in Central Europe in the areas around the Alps. And the main historian who has studied and collected evidence about these fertility groups is Carlo Ginzburg. And Ginzburg began his series of examinations of evidence about these fertility-related sort of shamanic groups. He began by examining one particular group who were called the Benandanti, meaning the good travelers or the good walkers, who existed in northeastern Italy, particularly in Friuli, in the far northeastern corner of Italy, in the 1500s. In Ginsburg's description, the Benandanti were shamanic in the sense that they believed that their spirits had the ability to leave their bodies on certain nights of the year, and specifically on four times of the year around the solstices and equinoxes. Their bodies could travel out through the night around Friuli and the Veneto, where they could meet with and commune with the spirits of the dead, travel to the world of the dead, and also fight and do battle with evil spirits in order to protect the crops and the livestock. And they did so using certain plants with magical properties, particularly fennel. And they also believed that they could enter and inspect people's homes. When they were engaged in these ecstatic spirit journeys, they could enter and inspect people's homes, give or take gifts. And some of them claimed that they even broke into people's wine casks and bathed in the wine. The Benandanti were apparently gender mixed. As far as we can see, they were about an even mixture of men and women. But Ginsburg found in further researches that there were other somewhat similar shamanic groups around different parts of Europe, especially Central Europe, who were majority women. That was more the common pattern. And in many places, these sort of mysterious groups of women were called the good ladies or the good society. How did one know that one was a Benandante, if we begin with the Benandante? One knew that one was a Benandante because one was born with the call, which is a way of describing a piece of the amniotic sac still intact over one's head 
when one is born. And it's a fairly common pattern in many parts of the world to believe that people who are born with the call have some sort of special magical power or protection. And if we look in the Voynich manuscript, as I said, there are these hundreds of figures of naked women, but most of them are not actually completely naked. Rather, they're depicted wearing knit cloth caps or hats that cover over their hair, which are customarily called calls, the same word as this word for the the amniotic sac on the head. So it's possible if we consider that it already seems as if these tubes and passageways connecting the pools and chambers in the Voynich manuscript might represent passageways in the body, it stands to reason, I would say, that perhaps they are specifically supposed to represent the womb and the birth canal in keeping with this theme of fertility, reproduction, and the female body. Now, these observations that I've pointed out connecting the Voynich manuscript and its contents with the Benandanti and with Carlo Ginzburg's research. This does not mean that the Benandanti created the Voynich manuscript. There are many reasons to think that that is not the case. We do not see, for instance, fennel uh, featured in any particular, particularly important or prominent way. There's no smoking gun here connecting the book to the Benandanti. But I would argue that there are reasons to think that the book may relate to the sort of quasi-hidden, somewhat underground network of shamanic healers and seers that Ginsburg, I think, has demonstrated fairly well was widespread and was kind of an open secret in much of Central Europe through the 1500s. Okay, so, so far, so good, right? It seems all in all as if we should have a reasonably good guess of what this book is and where it might come from. The signs seem to point towards the 15th century in northern, particularly northeastern Italy, connected to a secretive group of largely women who were concerned with fertility. But there's a hitch. The hitch is that there are also some distinctive clues in the illustrations that point towards a later date that seem anachronistic for the 15th century. For example, as I mentioned before, there are some that strongly suggest contact with and knowledge of the Americas. Some of the best plant identifications that can be made are American, like the sunflower and the cactus that I mentioned before. And also on page 80 verso, folio 80 verso, in the margin, there's a depiction of a curled up scaly creature that certainly looks a great deal like an armadillo. And armadillos also are American. They were unknown in Europe and the Old World before 1492. Now, others have argued that, in fact, this creature could be a pangolin. And if you look at the pattern of scales, the way they're arranged across the animal's back, 
it does look more like a pangolin, which is a small scaled animal that lives in Asia. Or it could simply be based on mythological sort of monsters and creatures like you see in various medieval books. So it's quite ambiguous, but the scales, as I said, seem more like a pangolin, but if one looks at the shape of the head and the pointed snout, it looks a lot more like an armadillo. And if you combine this with the plant identifications, these tend to suggest New World or American knowledge and specimens, which would mean that these images could only have been created after about 1500. There are also other possible anachronisms that some have pointed out. For instance, in the pharmacological section, as I said, there are segmented cylinders that look extremely similar to early microscopes, specimens known from the early 1600s. There's one in particular that looks like a pretty good match to the so-called green microscope, uh, an early microscope by an unknown maker that is held by a museum in Florence. And it's there are also others that look very similar to microscopes that were owned by Galileo, which are sort of segmented cylinders set on three curling legs, and that date to about the 1610s and 20s. So if we take these apparent matches seriously, then that means that the book must come from after 1600, not just after 1500. And overall, if you consider what looks like the optical instrument objects, the new world specimens of plants and animals, the sort of fanciful kind of quasi-alchemical scenes of bathing, all in all, the imagery in the book looks fairly similar to alchemical herbals that were produced in the early 1600s, particularly for the court of the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, who's a figure that we'll come up and talk about again later. So if we take these identifications seriously, then it seems that it couldn't have been made any earlier than about 1620. It's increasingly implausible if you take these to be not just coincidences, but real identifications, then the book can't be as early as it seems from the other clues that I talked about before. So there's a contradiction here. So again, let's go back and consider what are the three possibilities that we have on the table. One, that it's really a 15th century book, which is based on the age of the vellum and is also bolstered at least by the imagery of the clothing. A second possibility is that it's later, from the 16th or even more likely 17th century, but that it is made to look older and was put on old vellum. These New World materials, what look like American materials, indicate that it has to be post-1492, and the optical materials, the things that look like microscopes, put it even later. And if this is true, if it's not really a 15th century book, that would indicate that probably the creators were intentionally 
archaizing. It seems very likely they were intentionally archaizing, using old worn vellum and using old styles and motifs in order to make it seem older than it really was. And hence you could say it's a sort of fake or hoax of sorts. Not a modern day fake or hoax, but a Renaissance era fake made in the 15 or 1600s and styled and created in such a way as to seem older, perhaps to give it more of an air of mystery or importance. The third possibility, again, is that it's a modern fake or hoax made by Wilfred Voynich or people who conspired with him at some point in the early 1900s. All in all, this third possibility of a modern hoax seems even more unlikely, even though, again, there are anachronisms and contradictions. But we have to consider the convergence of different clues and evidences, all of which point towards the creation in Central Europe, particularly northeastern Italy, somewhere between the 1400s and the 1600s, which will be backed up even further with more evidence that I'll talk about later, but we'll leave that uh, for now. And faking all of this, the styles, the images, the motifs, the materials, the vellum, the ink, the age, the wear, creating all of this uh, artificially would have required enormous amounts of work, all of which had to be executed flawlessly so that there could be nothing to link the book to modern day. And furthermore, all of this work would have had to be performed in this painstaking way, all while there is nothing in the book to link it to any famous person, place, or event. And hence, there is nothing to give it any particularly great market value. The only thing that has made the Voynich manuscript famous is that no one has deciphered the writing. But there is nothing to link it to Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo or to any particular pope or philosopher. And there is the, the imagery and the materials and the style all tend to point towards some obscure maker, someone who is either totally unknown and unremarked in the historical record or is just too obscure to be noticed. And as I said, the odd variation on alchemical and astrological beliefs, it can seem as if the creators are messing with us through this weird combination of familiar and alien, but it's not random. It seems to be connected or concerned with fertility, and that points us towards exactly the sort of people who might have created this kind of a book with these bizarre features. And the most important thing that the book does not have, which I'll mention again lastly, is there is nothing in the imagery, the style of writing, the materials, to link it to Roger Bacon. And we know that that is what Voynich really wanted. He wanted people to believe that it was a Bacon manuscript. And by all indications, he himself believed that he could hold out until it was authenticated as a Bacon creation. And because he adhered to that path, he ended up making no money whatsoever from the book. So I would say, based on what we've seen thus far, the idea that it's a modern fake or hoax, it cannot be disproved by anything we've seen so far. It is still in principle possible, but it seems the least likely. So mainly we have to adjudicate between the first two possibilities. Is it what it appears to be, a 15th century codex, 
or is it somewhat later, perhaps unintentionally or intentionally old-fashioned looking? So in order to try to decide between these two possibilities, we should then consider the text. And I'm not going to get in just yet into the possible contents or language of the text, but just the text as visual evidence, the look, the appearance of the text, not the putative contents or meaning. So let's consider the writing in the book as visual material. As I said before, the writing is in brown iron gall ink. It's in a unique language, an alphabet, which has never been found anywhere else, which we call Voynichese for short. And the Voynichese alphabet seems to have at least 23 repeating characters. Some of these characters in the Voynich alphabet look pretty familiar. They look close to Carolingian minuscule writing, what we in English call lowercase writing, letters like O, A, and G. But others are not. Some are distinctive to Voynichese. The most unusual and striking characters in the Voynich alphabet are the so-called gallows characters. So one which is called the single gallows is like a giant capital P with elaborate curlicues ornamenting each of the corners. And the other, the so-called double gallows character, looks somewhat like a large Greek letter pi with two vertical legs, a horizontal crossbar connecting them, and little loop-de-loops at each corner. So the single gallows and the double gallows are, are striking and don't match anything that looks familiar from Latin or Greek writing. The double gallows character and the single gallows play different roles in the text. The double gallows character appears repeatedly all throughout all lines of text, whereas the single gallows character appears only in the top lines of paragraphs. So apparently it was only used in lines where there was that extra space to give it the full height, and otherwise it's left out. In addition to the many blocks and lines and single words of Voynichese, there are also marginal notes and labels in the book that are not in Voynichese. For instance, there are Arabic numerals written in the corner of each leaf, numbering all the leaves. There are also some small labels and notes in French, most significantly in the Zodiac section, there are French names of the months added in next to each character. And I'm no handwriting expert, but I would say that the writing, the style of writing of these French notes looks different from the Voynichese. And there's no particular reason to think that the same scribe wrote them. And most observers tend to think that they were added in later by some later owner of the book. So if we go back to the Voynichese text, looking at it visually, there are certain important qualities of it. It is very smooth and clear, and it's written with a very high-quality, clear, smooth ductus, which is what handwriting experts call the sort of fluency and smoothness with which a text is written. It seems to have been penned fairly quickly and fluently, probably by a very practiced hand that was accustomed to writing in these characters. It also was written in more than one hand. We don't know exactly how many, 
but there is a fairly clear shift in the handwriting about halfway through the book. And so experts agree that there were at least two scribes, maybe more, who wrote the Voynich's text. Now this then, you can say, supports the idea that the book was created by a small group or circle of creators, not a lone visionary. This was not some lone loony who made this all up. There were at least two people, possibly more, and hence one might suppose that perhaps the Voynich's language was a shared language used for communicating and recording knowledge among this group. In general, overall, the writing style, even if we put aside the subtle differences between the two different scribes, the overall writing style shows clear, open, smoothly uh, finished loops, straight, upright, vertical stems of the characters, and overall, it's very clear and balanced. And this style of writing, if we compare it to writings in Latin, this style of writing is called the humanist hand. And it's characteristic of writing in Carolingian minuscule, particularly in the early Renaissance, most specifically the mid-15th century. So the humanist hand is designed to be clear and accessible for the reader. And later, in the late 15th and 16th centuries, the humanist hand was gradually replaced by tighter and more slanted writing styles and letters marked out by smaller, subtler markers designed to be easy to write, not to be easy to read like the humanist hand. So if we compare the style of the Voynich text to known texts from the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, again, it tends to align the book with the mid-15th century, which is in line with what we saw in the clothing and in the age of the vellum. That, if we go back to our possibilities, it, it tends to support, not in a very powerful way, but at least loosely, it tends to support the first hypothesis that we have a real 15th century book. Or if not, it makes the notion that the book is a later fake from the 16th or 17th centuries a little bit less likely, but still possible. If it is later, it, it tends to suggest that it is a sort of a fake, or it involves fakery that is intentionally archaized, again, made to look like it's from the 15th century. Now, what if we look out more broadly and say, are there any parallels of similar looking texts that visually resemble the features and qualities of Voynich's. Well, there are some loose, rough similarities, much like we can take the plants and say, well, this one looks kind of like an opium poppy, and this one looks kind of like a sunflower. There are some loose, rough similarities. For instance, the glagolitic script, which is a special writing system created in the Middle Ages for writing Slavic languages, and that was widely used in Eastern Europe. It has similar kinds of loops and the, the, the glyphs, as they're called, can look somewhat like Voynich's, but it's not a close match. It doesn't necessarily mean Voynich's was based on glagolitic. Rather, there's a closer approximation, I would say a much stronger resemblance, between Voynich's and the text in handwritten codices created in Mexico in the 16th century. So 
Over the course of the 1500s, indigenous Mexicans, especially scholars, healers, and sort of knowledgeable men, worked together with European missionaries, particularly Jesuit missionaries. They collaborated to hand write and hand illustrate books to record the knowledge of history, geography, medicine, and art from Mexican civilization. And these books particularly prominently feature scenes of gardening and horticulture in order to convey and the herbal and medical knowledge of pre-Columbian Mexico. Most specifically, the Codex Osuna was made in Mexico in 1565 with handwritten text in Nahuatl, which was the main classical language of Mexico. And the text of the Codex Osuna looks particularly similar to Voynichese. And specifically, Nahuatl has many TL sounds. You know, it's right there in the name of the language, Nahuatl, many other common words, atlatl, tlatlalku, uh, chocolatl, which is the root of our word chocolate. This is a common repeating combination of sounds. And in the text of the Codex Osuna, you can see that the scribe, as they repeatedly write T and L, they, they often run together with the crossbar of the T extending over and crossing the L as well, as if the two are running together and beginning to form a single repeating character. And when you see this TL linking in the Codex Osuna, it looks remarkably similar to the so-called double gallows character in Voynichese, which also repeats frequently throughout the Voynich text. This, as far as I have seen, this is the only possible explanation for the unique appearance of the double gallows character in Voynichese, which is the most distinctive and striking aspect of the Voynich alphabet that sets it apart from Carolingian minuscule. In addition, many of the images of gardening, of plants, of human figures, which sometimes are also rendered a bit crudely in the Codex Osuna, are remarkably reminiscent of the Voynich manuscript. And as I mentioned before, the botanist Arthur O. Tucker has argued that many of the plants in the Voynich manuscript appear to be Mesoamerican. And as Tucker points out, indigenous Mexicans used ritual and medicinal bathing. This was part of their healing and ceremonial practices. So looking at all of the visual clues, including the appearance of the writing, there seems to be the closest relationship and closest concordance between the Voynich manuscript and these 16th century Mexican codices, especially the Codex Osuna. So with all of this in mind, one can again zero in on two main possibilities, which we can describe a bit more narrowly and specifically. One, that the Voynich manuscript was created in the 15th century, probably in northern Italy, as its physical features and visual clues indicate, and that the similarities to certain images, objects, and texts from the Americas is merely a coincidence. Or the second possibility, 
that the book was created somewhat later in the 15 and or 1600s by someone either in America or from America or with a great deal of knowledge and exposure to American specimens, healing practices, and written texts like the Codex Osuna. And that this person who then created the Voynich book used old materials to write on and certain aspects of an archaic style and archaic motifs, perhaps to intentionally archaize the book to add to its apparent value and appeal. So I would say these are the two main possibilities that we have to consider. And with that in mind, we should then turn to the text and what we might be able to discern or guess about what it does or does not say, and consider whether these visual and physical clues I've been talking about help us to narrow down what the nature of the text might be. So that's what I'll discuss first in the second part, the text and the clues as to the provenance of the book, where it might have come from and who owned it and how it ended up in Wilfred Voynich's hands. So thank you so much for listening. Again, if you can support, please go to my Patreon page and uh, sign up at any level, even if it's just a dollar, and you can hear my patron-only materials, including my next Myth of the Month. And soon I should be following up with the second part of the examination of the Voynich Manuscript. Thank you. Thank you.